0: Revelation chapter 3, what a great milestone here. (laughs) Notice that the first churches that Jesus talks to, um, he tells them what they've done right, tells them what they need to fix. There's a couple churches in there that have given way in the middle of that, that have given way uh, to some false teaching, to some, uh, some stuff that's really going to destroy the church if they don't take care of it. And uh, in these last few uh, churches, of course, Philadelphia being the exception, but certainly with Sardis and Laodicea, we're going to see pictures of churches that aren't aware of how far they've kind of fallen. Uh, certainly that was the case in Ephesus as well. You know, in Ephesus they uh, had a lot of things right, but they'd lost their first love. By the time we get to Sardis, there's, there's something that Jesus is addressing. You know, listen, uh, I think it's worth bringing up every time we read it, how Jesus started this conversation with the churches. He said, I hold, first of all, I hold the seven stars or these messengers in my hand. So the messengers to these churches. He said, but I also hold these golden lampstands. He says, I walk amongst these golden lampstands. And these golden lampstands are the churches that he's about to address. He calls them golden. Golden. All their flaws, they're still very precious to him. And they're a lampstand to that whole region. He says, I walk amongst the golden lampstands. I've been observing. I've been among them. Um, And in every one of these letters, you'll recall that he says, I know something about you, right? I know your perseverance. I know your tribulation. I know where you live. Here, he's going to say, I know your works. And we've talked about this before, but the word that he uses for know in the Greek is not a word that you, is not the word that you'd use because somebody told you or somebody prayed to him and said, this is what's going on. This is a word that you know by observation. You know because you've observed. And of course, you know that we say, well, God is everywhere. Of course, he doesn't know anything by secondhand knowledge. But there's a, there's a picture of intimacy. There's a picture of Jesus saying, I've walked amongst your churches. I know everything there is to know about you. And we've, we've, of course, said that's the perfect picture of love is to be fully known and still loved, right? That's, that's what marriage makes marriage great and, and, and what a lot of people might be afraid of. You know, you, go on the, uh, you, 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 you court or date somebody and you put your best foot forward. You hope they don't figure out that you don't always smell that nice and you don't always look that nice and you don't always talk that nice. But sooner or later, you have to trust that somebody's gonna see you at your worst and still love you. And that's exactly what we found in Jesus is that he fully knows us and he fully loves us. We, of course, are washed clean by his blood and we stand in his righteousness. And it should be a picture of what we see in the church. It's to know one another and yet to love one another. Isn't that right? That's how we, that's, which is impossible with our own love, but it's quite, it's normal with the love of Christ. That's what should be expected. Jesus knows us, and he knows these churches, and you know, uh, we've talked about this in, in a context of a, a, of a doctor saying, I love, I said, well, not I love you. If your doctor's saying I love you, I don't know, maybe it's an inappropriate relationship. <laughs> I think our doctor loves us. Hey, Tia? Yeah, he goes to our church, so I think he loves us, but um, <laughs> no, but there's this idea of a doctor who says, I care enough to tell you, you've got something that's killing you, let me cut it out. That that's not a negative thing. It's not always a negative thing to hear a negative thing, right? It's, something, it's a very positive thing to hear a negative thing when, that's, when its purpose is to, to heal you, when its purpose is to fix you. Remember, Jesus loves the church more than the church loves the church. Jesus loves you more than you can love yourself. I don't care what a raging egomaniac you are. He loves you more than you love yourself. And so when you understand that, remember, we've talked about this, but in Hebrews it says those he loves... The legitimate children, the legitimate sons and daughters, he'll discipline. The psalmist wrote, "He, he scourges those in whom he delights. So the discipline of the Lord is proof of his delight in you, which we've been raised up in an orphan rejection culture where we feel we're so nervous about being rejected that the first time we get corrected, we see it as someone pushing us away. You're not perfect. I don't want you anymore. I, re- I reject you. Whereas of when, when a, a child knows that they're loved and they're confident in that love, they can be corrected and it's not proof that they're not approved of, that they're not pleasing. It's just proof that the, the parent loves them enough to correct them. You, cr- you love your kid enough to tell them don't play in the street. You love them enough to tell them stop drinking bleach, whatever they're doing. You just t- tell them don't do that. Uh, we used the Tide Pod example the other day. <laughs> Somebody sent me a text right before church, and uh, it, was a, it was a, looked like a church sign or something, and it says, I was addicted to Tide Pods, but I'm clean now. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> You'll get that later. All right, anyways, there's this thought as, as Jesus talks to Sardis, once again, he's going to reveal some cracks that they're not aware of. I think I should give you some background on Sardis. You want some background on Sardis? Um, Sardis was probably one of the more isolated of all these seven churches. Of course, we talked about Ephesus and Pergamum being major ports and major centers. Sardis wasn't. Sardis was on the top of a really high hill. And it was a hill in which the ascent of that hill was made of material like rock or, or, you know, some other minerals that made it very slick, especially when wet. It was very difficult to get up it. There was only one road going up the hill on the south entrance, and it was like an, basically an animal road. It wasn't really a road. It wasn't a good Roman road. It wasn't even a good Greek road. It was just basically an animal trail. And so they, they had guards and fortifications on the south side in case somebody went through all the trouble of getting up that big hill Getting to their big fort and going by the only way in, which was the south way, they'd have a bunch of guards there to protect it. It became known as kind of the prototype of a, of a good ancient fortification. A big fort on a big hill. That's, you couldn't get much better than that. With only one way in. So for, for centuries, they became known as a, as a very, very safe and secure place. If you tried to attack them, you, you'd usually fail. It would be hard enough to get up that hill. It would be hard enough to get up it. But even if you did, there's only one way, and they're ready for you. But what, something happened as the weather, you know, because they, they're up high, so that it's cold. We all know what happens when ground thaws and refreezes, and, and and we know what the elements can do to a foundation. They're foundations of their fortifications. After time, weather, weather. Um, Began to take its toll on it. The foundations began to crack, and when Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, came through and was conquering much of Asia, uh, the a- Asia as we know it there, the ancient Asia, not not Asia, the continent that we talk about today, as he's conquering this part of the empire, he comes to it, and they have a fierce battle on the plains, and Cyrus has the upper hand, but Croesus, the king of these Lydians, the king of of, of the people that lived. Uh, here at Sardis, was quite confident in his fortifications. We can lose out on the field, but as long as we go back to our fort, we're okay. He was so confident that after that battle, with Cyrus following him, after they fled back to the fort, Cyrus and his army came behind him. Croesus was so confident that he went to sleep that night in his own bed without a care. But one thing they hadn't prepared for, they hadn't anticipated, in their arrogance, they just thought, we're safe, we're, we're secure. They had allowed cracks to begin to form amongst, along their foundations, so much so that eventually a person could sneak through it. Croesus woke up in the morning with Cyrus and his men in his bedroom. Not a comfortable situation. They weren't there to sing lullabies like, yeah, this was the end of it. And uh, the city was lost. The Persians gained the city because they had become so arrogant in their standing, they neglected their foundation. What's crazy about it is 320 years later, they made the same mistake. Once again, became arrogant. Once again, let the foundations go. Once again, said, well, we're inassailable. We're fine. Armies come in through those cracks, and once again, they're captured. It happened even one more time. Three times, they made the same mistake. Now, we all know that there's the church, and then there's the culture. But a lot of times, the same spirit that's influenced the culture can find its way into the church if we're not careful, right? So a lot of the things that Jesus says to these churches are things that directly tie to what's going on in their city. Because sometimes we're just not aware that this is not normal. There are things with our Canadian culture, our North American culture, that, that you know, if somebody, I mean, we have visitors come from other countries and they go, you guys are okay with this? You know, it's, it's things that we've become used to. And so that's why it's so important that, that we allow the Spirit of God to speak to us through His Word and, and through other people and through all of these methods to get us back to where we should be, to get us on the right path and to remember not to neglect the foundations. With that in mind, let's read what Jesus says to the church in Sardis because some of that same arrogance has crept into them. Some of that complacency or apathy has crept into their church. In chapter three, it says to the angel or the messenger of the church in Sardis, write this, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now, already you might be a little bit like, what are seven spirits? I know the Holy Spirit. What are the seven spirits? Well, would it surprise you to know that the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit? But often, in, in, in when we see these, these visions of, of and, and the prophetic picture of the Spirit of God, he uses this. He uses this number seven to signify fulfillment, perfection. There's nothing lacking in it. A, a great example I find is in Zechariah, when he says that the Spirit of God he says there's seven eyes. Well, what does he mean by there's seven eyes? aren't two good enough? What he means is the seven eyes, he sees everything. And of course, he talks about seven spouts and seven channels into the oil. He's talking about uh, all the anointing that's necessary of the Spirit of God has been given. So he says, Zerubbabel, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. In other words, you have a full supply of my Spirit. I'm not giving you half. I'm giving you everything I have. It's full. It's perfect. So when we see the seven spirits of God, we are seeing the spirit of God in every angle. It's it's everything that's necessary. You could go to Isaiah and see uh, the spirit described in a sevenfold way. Isaiah chapter 11. I could just read it to you real quick. Um, This by no means do I believe this is an exhaustive list of everything the spirit of God is. But this is a, a sevenfold picture of the Holy Spirit. He says... About speaking about Jesus, the, 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 the righteous branch that will come out of the stem of Jesse. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So this is the first attribute. The first attribute of the Holy Spirit is this, he's the spirit of the Lord. Yes. Right? So he is, he's not meant to just be your buddy. Even though he is our counselor, he is our helper. He is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh. He is, he's, he is God. So he's the spirit of the Lord. Secondly, he's a spirit of wisdom. Third, understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. That's four and five. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's six and seven. So look at that again. He is the spirit of the Lord. He's the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Of course, you could use a lot of other things to describe the Holy Spirit. That, that by no means is saying that's everything he is. But that's a picture of the sevenfold spirit of God. And so once again, in, in prophetic language, often when he's talking about seven of something, it's perfect. There's nothing more needed. So when he talks about the seven spirits of God, we're not talking about like a, the A-team or something. We're not talking about seven samurai. We're not talking about, you know, seven dudes that are walking around. We're talking about seven uh, parts of the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's perfect. It's Full, it's, it's, it's all-encompassing. The Holy Spirit is all-encompassing. He says he holds the Spirit. Then he says he holds the seven stars, which he's told us already. Jesus already defined that, so we don't even have to dig into a concordance. We just have to look at what Jesus said at the beginning of the letter, or the beginning of the book. He said the seven stars are these seven messengers, seven angels of these churches. And, of course, we know that angel in the Greek, that word can mean a divine creature, a divine messenger, But in this context, he's talking about the messenger of the church, the the leader of that church. That's who he writes these letters to. It's interesting to me that he doesn't write the letter to the church. He writes the letter to the messenger of the church. And it's that messenger's responsibility to pass that on. The letter is to them, but it first has to go through that leader. And uh, that's a big responsibility that I don't think a lot of leaders would want. But it's the one they're given. In one case, he goes out and directly corrects the leader. Well, I guess you could say in every case he does. But here's what he says. I know your deeds. I know your works. I know what you're doing. Once again, that word I know is he's not just saying I'm aware of it. But he's saying I've observed your deeds. I've, I've saw what you're doing. You know, Jesus cares about your deeds, doesn't he? Jesus cares about what you're doing with your life. To think it doesn't matter is, 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 is to think very low of yourself, Really? You've been left here for a reason. There's a reason you weren't raptured the moment you got saved, right? He cares. I've watched this. I've watched your deeds. I know it. I'm aware of it. I'm, I'm intimately familiar with it. He says, and that you have a name or a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Now that is the, that's the shock point, right? Jesus just wrote you a letter, says, you guys have a reputation. Your church has a reputation for being a live church, a church that is alive, but you're dead. Wow. I don't want to keep reading. I'm done, you know. Let's just roll that scroll back up. <laughs> a crazy John on Patmos, he says he heard from Jesus. I don't want to hear any more of this. But Jesus doesn't just reveal the crack. He tells you how to fix it, doesn't he? Yeah. Right? He goes on and he says this. You have a name or you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. And then he says, wake up, wake up, wake up. This is a message. When you say wake up, you're talking to believers, right? When you say wake up, you're assuming that they're alive. They're just asleep. Now, a sleeping person looks like a dead person, don't they? Right? It's impossible for a dead person to pretend they're alive, isn't it? I mean, unless it's like Weekend at Bernie's. It's impossible. I'm not, not telling you to watch that movie. But it's impossible for a dead person to pretend that they're alive. That's why a worldly person cannot live a righteous life. They can live a semi-righteous. They, they can imitate a righteous life, but they can't fully live a righteous life without Jesus. Right? It's, it's Jesus that gives us the power to live like Jesus. Right? You have to have him. You got to be something before you can do something. Right? But here's the deal. It's impossible for a dead person to pretend they're alive, but it is possible for an alive person to pretend they're dead. So sometimes there's believers that are playing dead. They're asleep. They're going through the motions. They're not, they, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think that they're alive, but there's still breath in them. God's not done with them, but they need to wake up. We, of course, see this again in Romans where it says, wake up and rise from the dead that Christ may shine on you. But the thing is, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. So what does he mean, rise from the dead? Does he mean they're dead? No, but they're laying amongst the dead. They've fallen asleep amongst the dead and they look like dead people. Wake up, rise, that Christ may shine on you. And that's where the power of God is, isn't it? He says, wake up and do what? Strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. I love that statement. When you hear, I haven't found your deeds completed. If we think of it in a context of a job, it, it, it's discouraging, right? Like, oh, I thought I was done, but I'm not done. But really, if Jesus says to you, I haven't found your deeds completed, that's really good news. That means I'm not done with you yet. That's the best thing you could hear. Because the moment you have completed your deeds, remember when Paul said, I have finished my race? What happened? After he said, I finished my race, it was time to get his head chopped off. Nobody wants to finish your race and stay here. If you're done, you're done. You know what I'm saying? So as long as he says, I haven't found your deeds completed, that means there's work still to be done. I have not kicked you out. I haven't thrown you out. There's work for you yet. You're not done. I'm not done with you. That's really encouraging. It's encouraging that we take a bunch of people that he says are basically dead. He says, wake up. Wake up, dead church. I'm not done with you yet. You understand that in another letter, he said, I could take your lampstand away. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I I could, this church is experiencing influence or experiencing growth. They're experiencing life. I could take that away and give it to another church. In this church, he says, if you wake up, this is all going to be good. Thank God that he says this while there's some things that still remain that are about to die, that are about to die. For I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So what do we do about that? What do we do with this information? So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. And then he goes on and, and he says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they walk with me in white for they're worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. We'll tackle the second half of that, of that letter next week. But for this week, I wanna talk about that idea of reputation and the danger of reputation. We all know that the, he's called these churches lampstands, which, which means he's, a lampstand is, is, something, is, is something where you put a light and you elevate it so people can see the light, right? Jesus said, nobody hides their light under the, the, the bed or the bushel, but they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all who are in the house, right? So who's in our house? JC. No, no, that's not what I'm looking for, Carmen fans who's in our house? Well, you could say, well, this is the house of the Lord. It's, it's uh, these believers around me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't need light. They have light, right? You're not giving light to the believers around you or else it's just light giving light to light. He implies that we're giving light to dark places. So what's our house? You could easily say Lloyd Minster's our house right? We're supposed to give light to Lloyd Minster. Your workplace is your house. We're supposed to give light to your workplace. Wherever the sphere of influence that God's put you in, that's a place where you are meant to be shining light. It's giving light to these people. And, 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 and Jesus says, when you do this, then how do we shine our light? How did, how did Jesus say we shine our light? Our good, works. our good works. That's how he said it. He said, let your good works. He said, he said, do, he said let these good works shine in such a way that it gives glory to God. So there's a way to do good things and it gives glory to me and there's a way to do good things and it gives glory to God. So we should let our light shine in such a way that people will glorify God in the day of visitation. So here we see a picture of a church that has influence. They're a lampstand, but that influence can be taken away because God is the one who gives influence. It's not our social media campaign. It's It's not how good our praise and worship is. It's not how good the signs are that we put around the church. It's not how good our outreach team is. God is the one who gives you influence in the community that you're in. You got to take advantage of it, but it's God that, that puts you on a lampstand. So he's telling us you have influence. So in that sense, I mean, what's the point of the influence? What's the point of the light? Well, it's to give glory to God. So reputation in that sense is a good thing. If, if we have, if by what our church is producing, what, what our lives are producing, people are hearing about the goodness of God, they're hearing about the nature of God, they're seeing it with their own eyes, and it's giving glory to God. In that sense, reputation is good when we are enhancing his reputation. We are spreading the fame of Jesus, as it says in Isaiah, your fame, your renown are the desires of our souls, Right? We want to make Jesus famous. The problem is, is when we begin to lean on our reputation. And we're going to get a reputation. If you're doing anything for the Lord, you'll eventually get a reputation. To the wrong people, it'll be a bad reputation. To the right people, it'll be a good reputation, right? The wrong people will begin to, you know, you you smell too much like Jesus. And to, to them, if they're rejecting Jesus, you smell like death. But you're the fragrance of Christ to God. So you can easily... When you're alive and the church is, 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 is seeing souls saved and people saved, healed, delivered, all of this, then what's going to happen is you're going to gain a reputation. Even the, even the early church, even when the city was afraid of them, they held them in high esteem. They knew, they knew there was power there. They knew there was something there. This church, I would imagine that their reputation for being alive didn't come from their community. It came from the other churches. Right? Because, you know, the community out there doesn't usually say your church is really alive. They don't think that way. That's usually a, that'd be a Christian term, wouldn't it? That'd be something we'd say about a church. You have a reputation. But he says, you're not living up to that reputation anymore. You're dead. I believe at one time they earned that reputation. The problem isn't having a reputation. The problem is putting stock in your reputation and leaning on your reputation because your reputation is based on what you did back here. And you can't live on what you did back here, right? We can't live on, on, on what happened and what God did 20 years ago in our church. We can't live on, on, on the miracle stories we have from 15 years. ago. We can still tell these stories. But if, that, if, you're, if you've just decided to sit back, we've accomplished something then we've lost the heart of what what brought us here to start with. What's the point? What's the point of still being here if if all we're doing is telling just stories about the good old days? Thank God for those stories. But you don't rest on those stories. I'll bring you to Philippians, uh, to a familiar scripture that I think is relevant for this uh, discussion. As Paul said it clearly about how he had every reason in the world to rest on his own reputation. Remember Philippians 2, what what happened in Philippians 2? He tells us about Jesus laying down his reputation, emptying himself, emptying himself of all that made him divine, except he still was the Son of God. But he walked as one of us, a human being, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he emptied himself, became, took on the form of a slave, a bondservant. Became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. It says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name, right? What did he lay down? He laid down his name. What was he given? A better name. If, we're will, if we want the name that God has to offer, you have to be willing to lay down your name. I have to be willing to lay down what I thought made me special What I thought I brought to the kingdom of God. Here's what makes me, here's why the kingdom should be very, here's why the church should be very happy to have me. Here's what I bring to the table. That attitude is dumb. and We all know it's dumb, right? But we could slip into it. And look what Paul said in Philippians 3. He says, In verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to glory in something? We boast in it. We brag. It, we, we get our, uh, we, we, everything that we think is, is special about this comes from Jesus, Everything that's worth bragging about is Jesus. Everything that's worth boasting about is Jesus. And when you glory in Christ, he gets glory, right? We give him glory. How, what does it mean to give God glory? It means to, to talk about what he's done, to, to spread that, to, be, to, to revel in, in what he's done. We glory in Christ. We put no confidence. He doesn't say we put little confidence. He says we put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, what's the flesh? That's what you bring to the table. That's you by yourself. He says, if anybody has a reason to be confident, it's me. He said, I far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As, now, see, we see Pharisee as a pejorative term now. We, we, that's a negative thing. If, if I were to call you a Pharisee, you'd be offended. But in Paul's day, it was the Pharisees that, that held Titus to the word of God. Their problem wasn't that they didn't live a life, a holy life. Their problem was they got so wrapped up in their own ability to live a holy life, they could not see Jesus when he came. Because what does Paul say in Romans 10. Putting their, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have neglected to submit themselves to the righteousness of God because they thought they were living a good life. They didn't grab on to the grace of God and the righteousness that's a free gift. They didn't see Jesus because they didn't think they needed Jesus. The sinners saw Jesus and said, this is what we're looking for because they knew they had a need. Pharisees thought they were doing fine. But really, come on guys, the Pharisees were far better than the Sadducees. They were far better than than the Hellenistic Jews over the sea in Decapolis. They were far better than those who kind of that same group that hung out with with Herod and his ilk. The Pharisees outside of maybe the Essenes were, were some of the most holy living people in the land at the time. so they had a reputation for being godly people. It was the Sadducees that had the reputation for being political and, and compromisers and and just had kind of let things slide so that they could have influence with the Romans. The Pharisees had respect. And Paul said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was at the best Bible school. I mean, his teacher was Gamaliel. He, he had a reputation for being a guy who knew what he's talking about. He had a good pedigree. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of, church, persecutor of the church. So I didn't just say it, I backed it up. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value. Surpassing value, that's a great phrase. That means it's worth more than I could describe to you. Surpassing value "...of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ." and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So I'm conformed to his death, which means I had to put to death even the things that people called good. See, we all believe, if someone came into the church and said, I was an addict, I, 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 I killed people, I beat people up, I was, a, I, I, was, I, I, I was, you know, I abused my wife, I abused my kids, and they come in and get saved, what do we say to them? Put it all, leave it all at the cross of Jesus, right? He, he, his, his grace is big enough. His blood is big enough for you. He's, he can wash away your sin. See, we, we, and society says that's bad stuff too. So it's no problem for someone to say, I let go of that. I put it at the cross. But do you realize what Paul, the point Paul's making here, he's not really talking about the bad things he did. He's actually talking about the good things he did. Right. Do you realize when you, put your, when you put yourself on that cross with Jesus, you don't just put the things society considers bad or you consider bad. You even put the things you consider good on the cross the things that used to make me something great, the things that used to make me something special, the things I bragged about, the things I boasted about, that was crucified too. I was crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Paul doesn't say, you know, I used to, I used to kick puppies, but I've let that go. I've learned to let that go because Jesus took it. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, you know, Every every time I saw a redhead, I just smacked him in the head. He doesn't say things like this. I just picked one color of hair. I'm sorry, guys. I could have said brunette or blonde. Please don't read too much into that. Paul doesn't name a bunch of things he did bad. He actually names a bunch of things people considered good. He says, I'm going to count these as loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing him. Watch what he says. Not that I've already obtained it or that I've already become perfect. So he, he realized that as far as he was, as, as well as he'd done in the kingdom, he wasn't finished. I haven't obtained it yet. I haven't become perfect yet. Not that I've already obtained it or, or become perfect, but I press on. I press on. What would have kept the church in Sardis from falling into apathy thinking that, well, we have a reputation for being a li- live church. You live on that reputation too much and, and you, you can still look like you're alive, right? We can still do the things that we used to do when we were alive and it looks to the outside observer like you're alive. But what did Jesus say about that? You're whitewashed tombs. You look nice on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. They had a reputation for it, but they were living on that reputation rather than pressing on. Now, you know, here's the deal. Well, let me finish what Paul says. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that which I was also laid hold of, for which, that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal it to you. However, now listen to this. Let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. Those things might seem to contradict. He said... I got to forget what lay behind. And, you know, I've heard people use that to say, you know what, you can't live on past revelation. It's got to be new revelation, continue day by day. You got to learn new things. And I don't disagree with that, but I think it needs some clarification. Because Paul doesn't say, let's just forget everything before. It's just, it's not about yesterday, it's about today. He says, I got to forget what lies behind. But he also says, let's keep the standard we've retained. He said to Timothy, He said, the things which you've heard and seen and received in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What was Jesus' remedy to a church that had fallen asleep? Wake up, strengthen the things that remain. What else did he say? What are about to die. Can you bring that up in Revelation 3? Strengthen the things which remain, which, which were about to die. And then he gives them another instruction here. Remember what you've received and heard and keep it. So there's a difference between living on past reputation. Living, you know, relying on past reputation is not the same as relying on past revelation. That revelation that God's put in you, that the things you've been taught, the things you've received, that's meant to be the foundation for more. You can't can't say, that's all. I don't need to learn anything else. Right? Or you're done. You're dead. As long as we stop growing, we're dead. What we've got to do is, is say, I'm going to keep that standard. I'm going to retain that standard that I've been given. I'm going to build on that standard. What did Paul say to Timothy? He said, the things you've seen, you've heard, you've received, you've seen in me, Practice these things. What's the point? The point is not what you know, it's what you're doing with what you know. That's what gives it life. What gives life to the revelation you have, the faith that's been put in you, how do we get faith according to the word of God? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So uh, so every time God plants a seed in your heart, faith comes. But faith without works or corresponding action is dead because it abides alone. So one of the worst things for you to do is to keep learning and not doing. Now there's a difference between, I'm not saying you should do every single thing that you've ever heard. Because God's got a path for your life. Get on that path. But we also can't just be sitting on the couch saying, well, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. you got to do something with what you got. Do something with what you've got. And so here, he said to the church, you're living on all this stuff, but you're not keeping what you've received. You're not, he says, go back to the things that you've been given. Go back to the things and go back and, and repent. Turn back around. Go back and strengthen the things which remain. So it seems, it seems like he's saying two different things, doesn't it? Because what's their problem? They're relying on their past reputation. But he doesn't say throw away the past. In fact, he says go back to it and go back to what got you here in the start. Right? I find that the revelation that God gives and what does revelation mean? It just means uncovering. It's the light that God gives you. Of course, we've heard the term and you've said it. You've got to live to the light that you have. You've got to live to the revelation you have. But God unfolds greater and greater, doesn't he? So, I'll give you an example. Um, For the rest of my life, I think I said this on Sunday, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be learning about the love of Jesus. He's going to build on what I've already been shown. He's going to build on what I've already experienced. He's going to build on what I've already received. But I'm never done. And how do you really learn about the love of Jesus? Is it that you read 50 books about the love of Jesus? That couldn't hurt. It could hurt if you're not willing to do anything in those books because it'll actually harden your heart. It'll teach you to be a hearer, not a doer. But the greatest way to grow in the love of God, I think the love of God's one of the most perfect examples of it. The greatest way to love and grow in the love of God is to put yourself in a position where you have to love people. Right? It, it says that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now you might say, how in the world could Jesus learn anything? At 12 years old, he was teaching the teachers. So what do you mean he had to learn obedience? He's the son of God. What more could he know? It was not about what was in his head. It was about walking through obedience. And when it says by the things that he suffered, he, what's he, we're back to Philippians 2. He had to become obedient to the point of death on the cross. So his, his obedience was perfected when he put it to the test. The love of God is perfected in us when we're going to love people, right? It's poured out by the Holy Spirit. It's perfected in us and and being put in situations. This is why you can't really live a monastery life and really fully grow into the things of Christ. I'm not against a time, but in reality, you're not going to know how love works until somebody comes across your path that challenges everything you believe about it. And that you just want to hate or you just don't want to love. Or you just don't want to be around. You're going to learn to love by unlovable people being in your face. That's not a theory. It's a practice. So what does he say to Timothy? He says, the things you've, you've seen, heard, learned, and received in me, or received and seen in me, he says, practice these things. And then what will happen? The God of peace will be with you. He's telling this church, here's how you get back. And I think we need to hear this because, you know, um, I think in this day and age, see, you you go to, I mean, who knows what labels we're being labeled with these days? I don't know. I know I'm usually surprised when other preachers say, so this is the kind of church you go to? And I go, really? Oh, okay. Is that what you guys think? You know, we, we usually have other people tell us what we believe. And I go, I don't know. You should visit us sometime. But, you know, okay, let's use a label like charismatic. I'm good with that. The word charismatic comes from the word grace. Yes. Praise the Lord. Does that mean I identify with everybody that calls himself a charismatic? Heavens, no. Yes. Just like the Baptist church down the road doesn't, probably doesn't agree, agree with the Westboro Baptist Church, right? So <laughs> labels are dangerous things. But, you know, you put, you put labels on people. So we might have a reputation as a church that, well, what would you, if you heard that label, what would you think? They believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Probably that's what you think, right? They believe in the gifts of the Spirit. They believe in the um, flowing of the Holy Spirit in a service or in, you know, you, you would, depending on the person, you'd put some thoughts to that. That reputation is all well and good. But a reputation is nothing. It's actually dangerous if you begin to rely on that reputation. And you can imitate that reputation. You can put out marketing materials, you can act like we're alive. I've been in churches where they knew how to act like they were alive, but it was a routine we did. It's just something we do. And, and the thing that had caused them to do that thing was long gone. But we go through the motions. You know, I, we had a, a brother in our church who, who came and was very honest with me and, and you won't know who he is and he's not here. But, uh, he, they've since moved. But, you know, he, he came in, in my office. He said, honestly, like when we're having this this time where we're, we're walking around and we're greeting one another, he says, I don't even want to be in the room. I said, why not? He said, because I feel like I'm faking it. I smile at people. I, I act like I love them, but I don't really love them. So I'm just going to leave the room if that's okay with you. I said, that's one solution. The other solution is to love people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a better solution. If you find you don't love people and you don't want to fake it, I agree with you, and I kind of give the guy props. He doesn't want to fake it. Good for you. The solution I would have is maybe different than his. His is just to leave the room. My solution was, ask God to put that love in there for you. But, you know, we all know how, and and believe me, I was raised in church. I think I can fake all the fruits of the Spirit. I'm going to admit that to you. I think I can. Now, long term, you can't fake anything. And really, none of those things can truly be faked, right? Because the fruit of the Spirit reveals itself. It shows itself to be real. But for, for 10 seconds, I can fake it. I can act like I got joy. I can act like I love you. I can act like I'm, I got peace. I can act like I've, I've got some patience or some self-control or some long stuff. I can act like I got gentleness and faithfulness and kindness. But really, in reality, that fruit's going to be tested, isn't it? And wax fruit tastes terrible. And I know because I tried my grandma's wax fruit when I was a kid. It was the worst thing I've ever eaten. No, it wasn't the worst thing. But it wasn't good. What's God's remedy? So this is what I'm saying. It's important that we hear this. I think every church in town has got certain reputations for certain good things. Right? I could, think, I could say good things about almost every church in town that really calls Jesus Lord. I could say something nice about all of them. And I believe it. But if you're living on that reputation, it'll actually be the worst thing for you. Because what you'll find is you're like the city of Sardis whose foundations begin to crack. And you've put so much faith in your reputation for being a secure city that you wake up and the army's in your bedroom. By the way, those three times, all three times, those attacks came at night when no one expected it. When they were, their guard was down. The enemy comes into a church when the guard's down when they put a lot of faith in the things that they have a reputation for but they're not attending to the things God gave them. So I'm going to tell you today there's probably some things that you might say we have a reputation for this. Then let us by all means strengthen the things that remain. Let's be awake. Let's be awake and someone who's awake is not staying in the same place. When there's awake when you're awake, there's movement. Growing in the things of the Lord. Remember, he called it an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So consistency, I've said this to you before, but consistency in Christ is not a flat line. It's an upward line, right? And growing in the things of Christ, is like riding a bicycle up a hill. If you stop, you're gonna slide backwards. There's no stationary position. There's no neutral, I'll take a break and stop growing. You gotta keep growing, And that's a good thing because it's God that does the work in you. It's not you. I'm not telling you to work harder. I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm telling you to let God do this through you and in you. Be diligent to let him work through you. Let his grace flow through you. And I've been quoting it for the last two weeks. I'll quote it again. Paul said, the grace of God towards me, I am what I am by the grace of God. His grace toward me was not in vain for I worked harder than everyone else but It was not me working; it was the grace of God working through me. Because once again, if we think it's us working, we've slipped back into the flesh, and there's no life in it. We're just as dead as the people that are resting on their laurels. I've told you this before, but it's very easy as a preacher. Once, once you started preaching long enough, you don't have the same terror on Saturday night that I used to have. Just thinking, ah, it's going to be terrible. Lord, help me, help me, save me from this. Lord, if you have to um, send a snowstorm, send a snowstorm. But if you can't do that, just give me the anointing. You know, (laughs) let it be. (laughs) God, help me. God, help me. Give me something to say. This is before I was a pastor, but when I first started preaching, I was just, I, I, I knew I had nothing. So God, I have to have you. I have to have, you have to do this. You start preaching long enough, you could fall prey to the trap of, I can do this. I can do this. I, I, I got some scriptures in my pocket. Uh, I, can, I can talk about this. I could read from this. And, and rely on your ability to communicate. But there would be no life in that, right? There'd be no real life in that. And everybody could walk away saying that was a great message, but there's no real change in anybody's heart. So just to echo the words of Jesus again, I have not found your deeds completed. If Jesus ever says that to you, rejoice. Rejoice because you're not done yet. Rejoice because he's not through with you yet. Rejoice because there's work left to be done. I'll say to you tonight, God has not found your deeds completed. There's work left. Let's not stop growing it. Let's not stop growing in the things we already know. Let's not stop walking in the things we already know. Like Paul said, we got to forget the things that lie behind. We can't rest on those things. You got to press forward and Upward. But let's retain the standard that we've received. Let's not just say, well, let's all throw it out. Let's build on the foundation that God's already given us. Amen. We'll grow from grace to grace, from glory to glory. Would you stand with me? Let's praise the Lord together.